transparent with you, uh, and, and, and I like to do that when I'm preaching, but um, I, I'm, like, terrible with emotions, like, absolutely terrible. I don't like dealing with them. I struggle to show them. My wife gets really annoyed with it. Um, I, live, I live way up in my head. I'm, like, a really logical person. Uh, I try to reason everything out, and, and then that's how I run my life, which isn't always really a bad thing, uh, but it's not always a good thing either. And on the flip side, allowing your emotions to rule you isn't a healthy uh, alternative. There just needs to be this balance. And today we're going to be talking about emotions some. And so it's going to make me a little uncomfortable. And for those of you who are like me, it's going to make you a little uncomfortable. But just stick with me uh, because they are important. For me... It's, it's a weird thing, though. There's certain things that bring out my emotions. And I'm sure there's like a, a, a pretty deep psychological analysis that my wife could do on me to figure out why these things bring out emotions compared to other. But it's like, it's TV. It's movies. It's, it's YouTube videos. It's like the five-minute inspirational videos you watch on Facebook that are on there all the time. And I'm like, I'll watch it and I'll weep like a baby. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't cry at anything else in life. Why am I crying at this? Or, you know, the end of Rudy... When they like lay all their jackets down, and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> I'm not even a Notre Dame fan, so it's like, I don't know what happens. But I love, I love seeing people overcome incredible odds to do amazing things, right? Like, I love to see people do things that I could never even imagine doing. This year, one of those moments was, and I don't know if you watched this or not, but it's America's Got Talent, and there's um, some amazing stories and people that are on that show all the time. But this year, from the very beginning, there was someone that just grabbed my emotions, my heart. Her name was Mandy Harvey. She got all the way to the finals. And, and Mandy is, is a singer, um, and, and really what makes her astonishing is uh, not her voice, but her story. See, Mandy went deaf at 18, completely deaf. So she can't even hear her own beautiful voice. When she auditioned, she didn't have shoes on. Whenever she plays, she, she feels the rhythm uh, in the floor when she plays. And she relies on some visual tuners to make sure her pitch is right. But really what happens is she holds on to the memories that she has uh, before when she was 18 of what sound is like, what music is like. She's 29 now. And when she was auditioning, you can just see in the crowd tears. People are being moved because her voice is incredible. The, and at the end, the, the, the judges and the crowd both give the standing ovation. Everybody is, is cheering, which she's not hearing. And she, she did such an amazing job. Her story is so uh, astounding to the judges that Simon Cowell, who's like a huge critic, America, uh, America's, what's the, American Idol, you know, he's like the singer critic on the judging panel, gave her the golden buzzer, which is that she skips all of the other auditions, goes straight to the live voting. It was a big deal. And I watched that video probably five times, and every single time I, I was crying with happiness and amazement. It was absolutely so cool to see her succeed despite her shortcomings. And the better part, and this is a side note, she's a Christian. Her dad teaches at my alma mater college at Johnson University, the campus in Florida. So she's actually sang at both campuses in the last year. But she 
is a Christian and has that faith background as well, which just adds some depth for us. But here's the thing about uh, myself and the crowd and, and the judges when it comes to uh, uh, being astounded like that. It's pretty short-lived, right? Like if I'm on Facebook and I watch a video that moves me to tears, in that five minutes, I scroll down and I'm on to the next thing in about 30 seconds. And, and no matter how strong these videos are, a lot of times for us, we will we'll have these emotions, but they won't change our actions or our way of life. On either end of the spectrum, the good things like Mandy Harvey or the bad things where we, we watch this brokenness going on in the world and we feel sad or angry, but it doesn't change us immediately. Jesus had just given one of the most eloquent, passionate, confident, challenging, encouraging, scary, revealing sermons of all time. He has given a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like and has laid out who will be a part of it and who will not. I can imagine just being there with the people around him, and when he started out with, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, they're like, amen, preach it, come on now. And then when he gets to the, the love your enemies part, people start to feel, well, that's not as fun as what you were saying earlier. A little more uncomfortable. And then he gets closer to the end, and he says something like, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, for I did not know you. And in that moment, they get defensive and scared. The sermon is an emotional roller coaster that we've been on over nine months, but these people would have been on in, in a matter of an hour or so, a couple hours. But when he finished, when all was said and done, this was the reaction. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus said these things, that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Their reaction was, wow, what did I just hear? Who is this guy? Can you believe what he just said? That was amazing. I'd imagine it's similar to the feeling that I got when I watched Mandy Harvey's audition. Or maybe when you get, when you watch a, a TED Talk or, or listen to a really cool podcast of the week. It's probably closest, though, to the way that people felt when they heard Martin Luther King Jr. speak, right? And as important as the actual subject manner of the sermon is, which we've studied for nine months, so it is really important. I don't want you to get lost in what I'm going to flush out the rest, but it is very important. They were not so much astonished at that, and with what he said, but they were astonished with how he spoke, how he said it, and who he was. At the very beginning of this series, way, way, way back in January, we spent some time talking about the context of Jewish discipleships, discipleship, and the way that Jesus was speaking into that, and really how this sermon is, is, is laying out his discipleship plan. And I'm not going to dive too much into that sermon. You can go remind yourself and listen to it. But the thing that I think is uh, good to bring back and back to light today is this fun word, simica. It's a fun word. Simica. It means authority. And, and with that authority, the privilege to make new interpretations of the Torah. Jesus spoke with simica. Simica. 
he spoke with authority. And this authority was unique to the very top rabbis that, that people rarely heard in that day. And he spoke with this simicha, and it was even more unique to him in a way that supersedes even those rabbis. See, Jesus spoke with originality. He spoke with confidence. The rabbis of that day, they, that the people mostly listened to, they didn't do that. They would quote other more famous, older rabbis, teachers of the time. That would be like me getting up here and just quoting Tim Keller or Matt Chandler or C.S. Lewis or Dietrich Bonhoeffer for 45 minutes and then sitting down, right? Not saying anything new. The rabbis of that day didn't have the authority to interpret Scripture. All they could do was teach somebody else's interpretation. Which often, that was an interpretation of somebody else's interpretation. And that interpretation, and so on, and so on. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he gives blessings and gives warnings without hesitation. He has the audacity to say that that the way you have heard this been said, been said before is wrong. And you need to listen to me in the way that I'm saying it now. But the greatest thing about all of this, all of what he said and how he said it with the authority in which he said it, is that everything points back to who he is. He says some absolutely mind-blowing things in this sermon that I want to bring out. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you on my account for my sake, or for my sake. He also says, I have come to fulfill the law. And then, like I said, he said, Many will say to you, Lord, Lord, and then he declares their judgment. So I want to, I want to focus on those statements a little bit more. If the Sermon on the Mount was purely just about the subject or the teaching that he gave, the first statement would probably sound a little bit different. It would probably sound more like this. He would end the Beatitudes with, Blessed are you when they persecute you for the sake of this really good lesson. He's not calling people to give up their comfort. We're talking about persecution. That's like this is the real deal. He's not calling people to give up their comfort, their reputation, their safety, their lives for a set of ideals. He's calling people to give up their lives for him because he is the righteous one. He embodies holiness. He embodies this lesson, this sermon. Or how about this really kind of odd statement, I have come. Have you ever walked into a room and said, behold, I have come? No, right? Because you would get the same reaction I just did. People will laugh at you. But Jesus did. He said, I have come. And that implies that he was somewhere else before he got here, right? He wasn't born into this world. Rather, he came into this world. He has been and always will be. He is God. In those three words, I have come, he says, listen, I am God. I am God. The Father and I are one. And not only does he say he has come, but he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is another drastic statement that gives the people there a very good glimpse of who he is. And it has several implications. First being that if you say you're going to fulfill something, you better know it. Every single piece of it. And Jesus did. Again, speaking to his authority is the, is the true interpreter, the one true interpreter of all of the law and all of the prophets. But the most important part about this 
is that he was saying all the law, all of the prophets, all of this, what you've heard before, they find their meaning, their fulfillment, their purpose in me. The people would have uh, known that. They would have been sitting around there, and when he said this, they would have said, this means he's the Messiah. He's the promised one, the Savior of God's people, the, the one that we've all been waiting for. I want to di- dive even more into this context of what these people would have seen and heard on that day. They're sitting on this mountaintop with this man in front of them, a carpenter. No higher education, no outward appearance of being a really smart guy. He doesn't look like he would know a lot. He, there's no magnificent part about him that says he's a king. He's a magi. But yet, in, in Matthew 5-2, when he opens up his mouth to start speaking, it is the very voice of God speaking. The entire sermon, yes, is meant to be a glimpse into the kingdom of God. And yes, is is the central teaching of Jesus that we are supposed to obey. But above all of that, just like everything else Jesus said and did, it is meant to point to us to him as the Son of God, God in the flesh, Messiah, Savior of the world, the magnificent one who, through whom the relationship between us and God has been restored, through whom the kingdom of God is brought about, through whom we can be a part of that kingdom. This authority that he had in his voice that these people heard was the very same voice that at the very beginning of everything God used to create the universe in which he spoke into existence. It is the same voice that spoke to Moses in the, the burning bush. It is the same voice that whispered to Elijah. And now that voice is sitting right in front of them, teaching them and showing them what life is supposed to be like and what it could be like with him. The reason that these people were astonished was not because of the excellent moral or social lessons that Jesus had just laid out. And there are some really good moral and social lessons. They were not astonished because of how cool or relevant he was or was not. They were not astonished because of how good he made them feel. They were not astonished because they were astonished because they realized something was very, very different about this person sitting in front of them. And we... We should be sitting in that same amazement and astonishment right now, and even more so, right? Like, we should be more astonished than what they felt because we realize and understand more. We have hindsight. Jesus Christ, God with us, has come. We know that he followed through all, through all of his promises. When is the last time that you just sat at the feet of Jesus That you allowed yourself to just dwell on the person of Jesus and be in absolute astonishment. To be left in the awe of his ability to heal and restore brokenness. To marvel at the way he lived his life perfectly with such love and grace and truth. To be awestruck that he died for you and for me and paid the punishment of our sin. He died our death, your death, my death. When's the last time you were left absolutely speechless? When you think about the power over death that he has, that he demonstrated when he came back to life three days later. And when's the last time that you felt 
overcome with joy because you now know that your relationship with the Almighty, the everlasting, the creator of everything from beginning to end, that that relationship is sealed and will continue into eternity because of who Jesus is. I think too often we get caught up in not being astonished with Jesus. That we don't remember his authority or who he is and we just live our lives on a regular basis thinking he's, oh, he's our friend. He's coming along with us for the ride. Here's the catch. Even if we did do that on a daily basis, Jesus doesn't want us to stop at astonishment. He wants us to fall in love with who he is. Out of this astonishment, uh, out of um, this sermon, we see two groups emerge. Those who were astonished with what Jesus said and what he could do, and those who were astonished and then fell in love with who Jesus is. One stops at astonishment, and that's the crowd they are described throughout the Gospels. And the ones who fall in love, those are described as Jesus' disciples. See, Jesus' disciples moved from astonishment into love. The crowd had a, a really short attention span, just like me when I watch inspirational videos, just like the crowd when Mandy Harvey stepped off the stage. They were astonished in that moment, but very shortly after, their astonishment wore off, and they were looking for Jesus to do something else, to teach something else, to heal somebody else, to, to show them something else to be astonished with. It was all about what Jesus could do and not who Jesus was. And throughout the rest of the Gospels, we see how this crowd follows him, just always looking for more. And eventually, when he lays out the cost of loving him and calls them to love him for who he is, they stop. They leave him. The best example of this, I think of, is in John chapter 6. And and he gives this call to a deeper understanding and love of who he is. And when you have the time, I want you to read the whole chapter because uh, it's in a remarkable event. But I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm going to just give you a snapshot because it's kind of lengthy. So in, in John chapter 6, in verse 2, it starts uh, with this. It says, A large crowd had been follow- was following him, Jesus, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. My point is proven already, right? But it doesn't just stop there. It, it thickens a little bit more. So this crowd that's following him because he was doing really cool things then gets hungry and Jesus does this remarkable thing where he feeds all of them. And by all of them I mean 5,000 men, which could be upwards to 20,000 people when you include women and children. He fed them all. It's, it's, it's incredible. And so this crowd was like, this is pretty cool. Let's take this guy, make him king so he could heal us and feed us all the time. And Jesus says, whoa, we're not on the same page. I'm going to go to this mountain, pray a little bit. Then he's like, I'm going to go across the lake, get away from you people a little bit more. He does so in this really dramatic fashion by walking on water. It's like the most direct route. He's just being efficient. Um, It's no big deal. He's just, he's so cool. So he's on the other lake, on the other side of the lake, and the crowd realizes, hey, wait, that guy that fed us isn't here anymore. So they run across the lake to run around the lake to get to him. And when he, they get there, they want more from him. And, and I love how brilliant Jesus is. This is another point where Jesus just shows that he's really the greatest preacher of all time. Because he starts to talk about this metaphor using bread. 
It's fantastic because remember yesterday he just made bread appear out of nowhere for 20,000 people until they were full. And now he's going to talk about what real bread is. He says this in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This bread comes from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Not too crazy yet. And then this statement comes like a verse later. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Huh? The crowd there, and really some of the disciples even go, Jesus, are you okay? I know you walked on water yesterday. Did you hit your head on? Are you okay? They don't understand. They get scared. They're, they're, they're worried. They don't understand that what Jesus is really talking about is a complete love and devotion to him. He's calling them in deeper to who he is rather than what he can do. They couldn't understand that, that nothing would ever sustain them or give them life like he would and will. He was again calling them to give up everything, safety, comfort, control, everything for him. So out of that crowd of 20,000 people that were following Jesus because of what he could do, only 12 were left. And out of those 12, only 11 would stick it out to the end. Only 11 would stick it out because they had moved past astonishment and into sacrificial love. You see, Jesus' disciples move out of astonishment and into love. When you don't move out of astonishment, when you don't move into love, there is no reason to stick around when the cancer hits. Astonishment can't get you through a, a breakup with your boyfriend and girlfriend, or when you feel rejected, or when you hate your job, or when you feel just alone, when you're single and everybody else isn't, when life doesn't go the way you want it. You see, the feeling of astonishment leaves real quick when you look around the world and you see racism, abortion, murder, sexual assault, rape. You see, the feeling of astonishment won't help you overcome your struggle with same-sex attraction or pornography or pride or anger or worry or anything else. Astonishment doesn't hold up in these cases. But love does. See, Christ's love for you and your love for him is what will give hope, give freedom, give peace, give grace, give the power to overcome. Love is what will hold fast when astonishment is hard to find. We've said it from the very beginning of the series that this, this sermon that Jesus gives is about discipleship. In this sermon, we, see, we get to see directly into the heart of Jesus. We get to understand how he lived and how he desires for us to live. We get to hear the voice of God telling us who he is in this sermon. But discipleship to Jesus is, is so much more than learning a set of guidelines to live by. But it's about falling so deeply in love with him that out of that love, you want to be and live just like him. A love for Jesus is, is active, and it calls for that sacrifice, and, and it calls for obedience. Love of Jesus motivates 
our desire for obedience. In John 15, it says this. He says this to his disciples about discipleship. By this my Father is glorified, that you would bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you would love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. A love for Jesus will continue to motivate us into keeping his commandments. His disciples eventually got this wholeheartedly. They understood that because of who Jesus is, not because of what he can do, that they would give up everything, anything, to live out his commands, to live out this sermon that he gave. And they did that even unto their death. They saw that Jesus loved them so much that he gave up his life for them, so they loved him so much and loved others so much that they gave up their lives for him and his commands. See, the disciples sitting around Jesus on this mountain, listening to him give this amazing sermon, were absolutely astonished with his authority. They were astonished with who he was. They didn't stop with astonishment. They, they allowed themselves to move into love, which motivated their obedience. And so when, when they're at the, the end of Jesus' ministry, I can only imagine when he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, do something else astonishing, right? Right after the greatest event in human history where he died and came back to life and he gives his last command that his disciples remembered the feeling of astonishment that they had at the end of this sermon. Because they now understand and have seen the true authority of Jesus Christ over sin and over death. And that is why this last command would have sank so deep within them as he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His disciples understood that this authority points to, Jesus who, to who Jesus is. Emmanuel, God with us, Messiah, Savior, friend, restorer of our relationship with God, lover of our soul. They understood that this sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, the last nine months that we've been talking about, encompasses everything that Jesus has been trying to tell them and will try to tell them. And so now they are going to try to live that out because of who he is, through love of him and love of others. So now we are left here nine months later with our response. This sermon has always been leading up to one thing. Any encounter with Jesus leads up to this one thing. Now that you've seen and heard Jesus, how will you respond? Astonishment or love? Astonishment is easy, but it will always leave you seeking more. Many people look at this sermon and they think it's a good teaching and they really don't understand who Jesus is. They, they say he's a good rabbi or a good teacher or a good prophet. There's like a, a website out there that's like atheist for Jesus and they point to the Sermon on the Mount as them, him being like, we can get behind Jesus because this teaching is awesome, but they miss the point. 
They miss the point of Jesus saying that this teaching is about who I am. They stay on the broad path because when things get complicated, astonishment isn't going to help them anymore. It won't help them follow him anymore. Astonishment is easy. Love is hard. It demands obedience and sacrifice. It calls us to live in a way that puts Jesus and others above ourselves in every situation, no matter the cost. It will cause us to be uncomfortable and active. C.S. Lewis does say this in his book, Mere Christianity. He gives this illustration uh, about him going to the dentist. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache, and, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something, and it would deaden the pain for that night, and I, and I would be able to go to sleep. But I didn't go to my mother, at least, and not until the pain had become very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt that she would give me the aspirin, but I knew that she would do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could, not get a, I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew that they would start fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth that which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. Encountering Jesus is much like that, and choosing love over astonishment is much like that. The price is, is uncomfortable to pay sometimes, and too high to pay for some. This whole sermon is about discipleship, and being a disciple of Jesus requires love, not astonishment. A disciple of Jesus moves past being in the crowd to astonishment, in astonishment, into love. That love motivates obedience. C.S. Lewis goes on to, to kind of use his imagination of what Jesus uh, would be saying in this instance. Jesus, he says that Jesus, his, his imagination um, of Jesus would be something like this. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this thing through. I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect and so my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. That is what discipleship is about to Jesus. That through our love of him, we would become just like him. Let me, let me start to close by saying this. We should absolutely be astonished with the person of Jesus and all of the authority that he has. And we should do so as often as we can. Look at the wonders of creation. Read the richness of Scripture. Understand more of who he is on a regular basis. The Psalms are filled with astonishment and amazement of who God is. But we should not just stay at astonishment. But rather we should fall deeply, deeply in love with Jesus. And that's the choice that Jesus is raising within, within us that he was raising within that crowd and his disciples on that day, in that sermon. That through any encounter we have with him, we, we need to either move, we need to move from the sand to the rock with our houses. We need to walk on the narrow, not the broad. We need to move from astonishment into love and obedience. So let us, let us be astonished disciples of Jesus Christ who love and obey him. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.